Welcome to Raising Standards with Rhiannon Evans and Matt Smith, a true Roman history podcast for true Romans. Hail Caesar. Welcome to Raising Standards, an occasional rewatch podcast in which we take a fond look at HBO's Rome. I'm Rhiannon Evans. And I'm Matt Smith. This is Season 2, Episode 9, entitled... Deus impeditio es irriturio nullus. Thank you, which translates into No Good Can Stop a Hungry Man. It was written by Mia Smith and directed by Steve Schill. Hello, Rhiannon. Hey, Matt. Thank you for joining me today. Pleasure, as always, uh, to discuss what I thought was uh, an okay episode of Rome. I think all the budget went on the makeup. <laughs> wow. They were doing some heavy lifting this episode. Mm. It had some interesting parts, but yeah, there's a lot of mayhem going on. And Antony, Cleopatra and Posca looked fantastic. They did. <laughs> in this episode, Octavian and Antony get in a tussle over the grain supply. Atia and Octavia get the cold shoulder in a hot climate. Varinus plays ball. Pullo deals with the people. Posca is the MVP, and there is at least five slaps in this episode. It's a lot. Yeah, it is. Mm. Such is Rome. Such is Rome. This is the second time we get a Latin title for an episode. Yeah, indeed. I Mm. don't know why they chose these episodes in particular for the Latin titles, but the other one was, uh, what, Testudo et Lepus? Oh, the tortoise and the 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 hare. Yeah. Quite a lot happens in this episode, but I really wish that I saw the entire season and a half they skipped over between the end of the last episode and the start of this one. This is our constant lament, isn't it? Yeah. That we want we want more, but we know we can't get it because they've got a lot of plot to get through. But in this episode in particular, I mean, I can tell that they're, they're, they're wrapping up the series. Mm. They are running at a breakneck pace, but they jumped over a good, I think, four years, maybe more. I'm just judging by the age of yeah. young children. Yeah, so Anthony and, and Cleopatra suddenly have children who are not babies. <laughs> no, there may be four pregnancy time, time to, you know, get to know each other. So you gather five years, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, Antonia was running around in this episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's Octavia and Antony's, yes. possibly Antony's daughter. <laughs> yeah, but she was pregnant at the yeah. end of the last episode. And Varinus's son, at least, has, you know, jumped up a couple of extra feet in height. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Also not his son. No, I also guess not his son. I guess he's accepted him as his son. Uh, sort of. Has he now? Has he accepted any of those children now? I think they're Pullo's <laughs> children now, aren't they? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hadn't really thought it through, but you could make a good argument that this series is about parenting and whether the better parent is the one who's not necessarily the biological or accepted parent. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I guess so. Well, that entirely wraps up into Antonia as well, I guess, mm. who has never seen her father mm. and never will. Mm. But yeah, so I missed what I didn't see in that time jump. Mm-hmm. But you can see that this episode is setting up for the final confrontation. Definitely. We've got one more episode mm-hmm. and we know that Octavian and Antony and Cleopatra have to come to blows. Yes, definitely. We should start this episode at the start. We do get some very nice establishing shots. So I like that they took the time to show us the docks in Egypt uh, to show a little bit of the streets of Egypt as well when Varinus is walking through them. Later on in the episode as well, it's actually not too much later, uh, Pullo is addressing the rabble of Rome and he's quite high up Mm -hmm. and you can see past him the Tiber River 
and mm. a bit of the landscape and everything. So some good, nice establishing shots here. Yeah, and in Egypt, it's specifically Alexandria. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of thematically important because it's those two cities being set against each other. Ah, the good two point. great ancient yeah, yeah, yeah. cities. Yeah. And that'll come up particularly with Antony's will, as we'll see. Yeah, it was nice, but I think slightly, oh, I can see why they did it. Slightly wasted to see Varinus's wife at the opening of this episode, Niobe. Mm-hmm. Niobe, there we go. And played by Indira Varma. She got no lines. So she's a ghost. At the very start of this episode, Varinus wakes up next to her in bed and it turns out to be part of a dream and she doesn't actually have a line or anything, but I guess it was nice to see her before the end. We very quickly get to see what's happened in the meantime with these characters in Egypt, as in... Varinus seems to be there in person, not so much in spirit. Yeah, he's been sort of gradually dying from the inside, hasn't he? That's a good way to put it. Yeah. So I think, yeah, he's sort of disappearing as a character. It's a shame. He was so strong at the beginning, but it's like he's getting it all beaten out of him. And I wonder whether maybe I'm, as with everything, maybe I'm overreading. But remember, right from the start, he was kind of forced to back a system that he didn't believe in. True. And that system is the one that's going to win, mm. the, the rule of one man. And remember the days when he was a Catonian, follower of the kind of strict backer of the Republic, Cato. So I wonder if that's part of it. I mean, obviously, a lot of it is the plot that they've designed around his family, the suicide of his wife, the alienation of his children. But he's also been the leader of a gangland mob now. And it's like everything he believed in has just gone. Yeah, Rome is not, during these days, the place for a man with mm. morals. Mm. And he's uh, he's had to change quite a lot to survive. And he hates that part of himself. Mm. It comes up as well in uh, very quickly in this episode where he's talking to Posca. And Posca's, in his own way, dying on the inside, I think. He hates what they've become in Egypt. He's smoking drugs. He's wearing eyeliner. He's gone native to a certain extent, but not in a way that he's enjoying things. And Varinus asks, where's Antony? And Posca's response is, where is he? It's a very deep question. His mortal flesh is in the throne room. (laughs) Posca is the deep thinker of this this episode. Uh, Yeah, I mean, that's interesting, isn't it? Because Posca, we think of as sort of living by his wits and for himself. But but he also feels something has been lost, clearly. Yeah, yeah. He's very much living by his wits in this episode. Mm. And Antony and Cleopatra appear to be embracing the worst of what Plutarch writes about them. Yeah, I mean, we've mentioned the makeup, which is very kind of overblown. I guess based on what we see depicted in Egyptian tombs or on wall paintings where, you know, you get that kind of really exaggerated eyeliner. So that has been put on Antony. It sort of makes him look like a glam rock star. Mm -hmm. And, you know. He rocks it. He owns it. (laughs) He's he's got the looks for it so he can carry it off. But it's clearly meant to look like a very decadent lifestyle that they're living. They've they've got no moral center. They've got no idea about what anything's worth. Mm. You see them kind of trashing things. And it just looks like a really disorderly what's meant to be a center of power. Yeah, yeah. They're just indulging themselves. And that is exactly what Plutarch describes. I mean, he doesn't talk about the eyeliner, but he describes them as having these kind of long, languorous 
trips down the Nile in the barge and, and really spending a lot of money. You know, there's the story about the banquet that costs a billion sesterces and all of this kind of thing. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah this, this is playing up to that to a certain extent. But I think also buying into the result of that means that they're not really in control, mm. not just of themselves, but of the movements of Cleopatra's kingdom. Yeah. And th- this uh, scene in particular is very evocative of that, I think. The way that Plutarch... Uh, I'm paraphrasing, of course, because Plutarch is, you know, Plutarch uh, writes about Antony in the terms of him being uh, drunk, emotional, uh, going native. Uh, All of this comes across, maybe not so much drunk, but very emotional, manipulative, wanting to be loved by Rome, Mm. but on his own terms. Mm. Yeah, and emotional is a good way of putting what Plutarch describes and what we see here. It's kind of irrational, this sort of flashing from one emotion to another, Mm -hmm. being kind of all in on... A lot of self-pity Plutarch describes. Yeah, that come across, yeah. 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 Um, but then you're right, we also get in Plutarch this desperate need to have the people love him, to be the, in Roman terms, the popularist, the mm-hmm. one who is popular with the ordinary people. But he doesn't have Julius Caesar's skill and what will become apparent Octavian's skill in cultivating that. Yes, Octavian's greatest strength and weakness is his detached nature mm. from everything. So the people don't love him as much as Antony, and that is something that he struggles with in this episode. But he's the best at leading with a clear head mm-hmm. and not being ruled by his emotions. Mm. Because there's a few times in this episode where Antony's emotions and Cleopatra's emotions both play in their favour and their strengths, but honestly just get in the way of everything. Mm. That first scene that we see them in this episode is them in the throne room where they're callously shooting arrows at a man who's dressed as a deer, which is probably one of the best scenes in this episode in the worst ways possible. Mm. My turn? Anthony, if we might discuss the matter at hand. Shh. Scare off the deer. It gets across just how dismissive they are, how much power they have, how little regard they've got for the ambassador who is there at the time from Rome. Is the ambassador even the right word? I'm treating them like it's a foreign country, but they're acting like it as well. And well, it is a foreign country. Yeah, I know, but you know, you go to talk to Anthony, you know. Yeah, yeah. I think that's deliberate though. I mean, (laughs) where his position is right now is is kind of liminal. Yes. That man is there to plead for grain for Rome because Rome is starving, Mm -hmm. which is right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Rome really needed grain from- All the time. Yeah. From (laughs) Egypt in particular. And Antony doesn't care. You need something from me. Mm -hmm. I'm going to leverage this for as much as I can. Mm -hmm. He and Cleopatra keep upping the Mm. demands. So they want triple the price. They want Carthage annexed to Antony's control. And then Antony goes, oh, and Spain, now that you've agreed to everything that I've said- I don't think the the person they're dealing with, I can't remember his name, is a particularly skilled negotiator. (laughs) It shows that Anthony's got very little regard for Rome, I guess, at this point. Yeah, and also that he's mixing up his kind of personal indulgences with proper state activity Mm. that he then turns around and starts shooting human stags. Yeah. It did make me think as well of, and I know we'll have mentioned this way back when we looked at Octavian Augustus, but that's gone in the mists of time. I don't think it's directly referred to here, maybe in the next episode, but the alignment between Antony and Dionysus, yes. so the god of wine, yeah. 
and then Octavian and Apollo, who is, you know, often seen as the god of reason. Yes. That those two aspects are being shown here. And Dionysus is also the god of drama and kind of different identities, dressing up and pretending to be somebody else, mm. and kind of disorder. And in Greek myth, associated with his followers, go and tear up animals on the hillside. Oh, so there you go. the killing of the is it a stag or a deer. That, it's, you know, it's a human dressed up. As... It's an unlucky man. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I hope he was a prisoner. I hope he was a terrible person. But also, there's a slight aside, but in Euripides' play, The Bacchae, the mm. king of Thebes, Pentheus, is torn apart by his female relatives because they think that he's a lion in their kind of delirium, their okay. drunken delirium. Yeah. So the person as animal is also part of that Dionysian. I don't know if any of that was going on in their minds when they created this scene. But they probably didn't have enough time to even <laughs> contemplate it. <laughs> but it sort of fits by Antony playing into this god of disorder, mm. which was absolutely identification was one that Antony made but also very much played up by Octavian afterwards mm. that aspect of it yeah whereas yeah. it would have been played positively by Antony but then spoiler he'll be dead and doesn't get to make the history mm. Mm. so a big part of this episode is uh the, the strong arm tactics of Antony and Octavian who don't get to share a scene for the rest of the series actually now that i think of it both trying to manipulate each other into starting the war mm -hmm. that they both want mm -hmm. but they don't want to be seen to start neither of them want to start it so antony being so demanding for the grain is him hoping that it will provoke yeah, octavian to push attack him over the edge yeah because whoever starts this war will be hated by the roman people mm -hmm. antony doesn't want to go into rome being the conqueror he wants to be the savior mm. does all of that track broadly very broadly, yes. But then we've got very broad brushstrokes here. So yeah. I don't think we can cover what's missing because there's so much detail. We don't know what Antony's thinking in this time. We don't know what Octavian's thinking in this time. Was it just this war needed to happen, not who was starting it? In our sources, there's sort of this feeling of it gradually becomes inevitable, mm. but there's not any particular trigger. So, you know, there's the leaving Octavia, the kind of shame of that. There's the what is often called the donations of Alexandria, the doling out bits of the empire to Cleopatra and to their children. Yes. Which has been read in other lights as well as Antony actually acting like, I guess, a magistrate from Rome might, which mm. is appeasing another strong kingdom, getting the East back on board. But yeah. it's not the way it's depicted in Rome. So there are all these possible triggers until in 31 BC, we're going to come to that clash. But it's not like, you know, the First World War where they shoot the Archduke and then we're off. Yeah. It just becomes more and more inevitable because of the, the growing gap between them. Yeah. Okay. I'm trying to think who the Archduke would be in this scenario. <laughs> would, would anyone miss Lepidus at this point? <laughs> <laughs> would anyone ever have done? <laughs> I mean, I think in as much as anything else, it's the leaving of Octavia, even though that's happened quite a bit earlier. Mm, yeah. Than the killing of anyone. Yeah. They do bring that up again in this episode. So I do like that they kind of wrap that in some ways into mm. this, which we will get to. Silence! The day's ration has been given. There'll be no more until tomorrow at the appointed time. So Pullo, meantime, in Rome, appears to be running Rome. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> yeah, pretty unlikely. Yeah, but somehow we've gone from, you know, collegium 
brothel bar crime establishment to Pullo seems to be in charge of doling out the grain and dealing with the people on the kind of representative I'm your man on the streets kind of level. Yeah, I mean, I guess, and this is not made clear at all, Varinus was made a senator at some point. Yeah, but that was by Julius Caesar at the end of season one, and I'm pretty sure that was null and void with the death of Caesar. Yeah, he doesn't seem to continue to act in that capacity. I was just thinking if... If Pullo has become some kind of minor magistrate, he might well be in charge of the corn dial. Usually, you know, it was, it was vaguely maybe a, a senator slash equestrian kind of level to deal with those kind of yeah, duties. Yeah, I mean, the, yeah, you've got those, you might be a quaestor, they often deal with mm. with financial things, but I don't think we need to interrogate it too closely. Yeah, I think it was a good way to see just how disruptive the lack of grain was mm. and how close they were to starving at least in the context of the show, in Rome at the time. I think at one point that Pullo says, you know, if they stay at quarter rations, then they'll have maybe 10 days of food left. But yeah. this, is, this is really persistent in Rome. It happens over and over and over again, mm. and it will be one of the things that makes Octavian's reputation, that he will fill that gap through his personal finances at times, but really means raiding Egypt. Yeah, I mean, this comes later, and so, but that's one of the ways he presents himself on his epitaph yeah. that he provides for Rome. Okay. So he's the kind of ultimate benefactor well, that helps him become emperor. Well, in this episode, Pullo does take his problem to Octavian and Octavian's solution, not really solution, just a stopgap measure in the meantime is I will send three legions to Africa and Lepidus can feed them and that will give Rome more food mm. to dole let's, out to the people. outsource the soldiers. Let, outsource the problem, let, yeah. They, <laughs> they, they need stuff in their stomachs. Yeah, yeah. And so I guess in in that way, he's dealing with the problem. So Pullo seems to have an expanded role, given his background with Octavian. Maybe that has something to do with it. Uh, Yeah, but like you said at the beginning, there's so many, I don't want to say plot gaps, but things that must have happened to put him in that position. Yeah, that's exactly right. We've had to just brush over it. The other thing is, you know, at the end of the last episode, there was a a big uh, street brawl, essentially, Mm -hmm. between Pullo and the other collegiums. Collegia. Collegia. Yeah, all right. Yeah. Okay. Collegia. Collegia. But, oh, Collegia. but they're pronouncing Sorry, it as ja, aren't yeah. they? Yes. Collegia. I don't so. know. Mm. Uh, so, <laughs> so, <laughs> so that has happened. So maybe, again, in the last four years, there's been no street crime. And maybe he's got that kind of, you know. That hold. Maybe he owns the place, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, that kind of disruption, I think we associate more with the 50s than this period now mm. in the 30s but it was probably ongoing at a low level this this kind of and you, you got uh, to think memios in a cage then that was the main competition mm. and pullo has a relationship with gaia at this point they seem to be quite close four years is a long time sure mm. i buy that he seems to be closer to Varinus's children than Varinus ever mm-hmm. was but then again uncle pullo has some familial distance so i can see that happening as well uh, Verena's eldest daughter, Verena, joined the same sisterhood, priesthood, yeah. as Lydie has. So she's a, a daughter of Orbona. Yeah, so she's part of that cult now, which they imply is kind of her job now, at the centre of her identity. Mm. Which was good to see. She seems to have calmed down a bit. <laughs> oh, God, what a way to put it. I think, she, I think maybe she's found a place in society that, I mean, I think she just, you know, she was so displaced by having been kidnapped and... and put into slavery yeah. and, and used for prostitution yeah. that, yeah, 
that's enough to um, to scar anyone, Indeed. I think. Yeah. Your husband has plenty of grain in Egypt, but he is playing politics with it, holding it back. If you were to go and talk to him... I? Go to Egypt? The soft voice of a loving wife may succeed where all else has failed. You are joking! I cannot remember the last time I made a joke. So one of Octavian's tactics to try and provoke Antony and Cleopatra into some sort of aggressive action is to play the long game here and send Artia and Octavia to Egypt mm. to have them request that Antony send the grain and be more reasonable, fully well realising that he's going to refuse them and then have a reason to act more directly because you are spurning your good Roman wife for a foreign filly. So there's no historical background to this. There's nothing in our sources about this happening. About Octavia going to Egypt. I mean, as we keep saying, Artia dead by now, but mm-hmm. no, not Octavia either. At one point, she goes to send troops to Antony in one of the scuffles that we don't even get to talk about here. She gets sent back and then I don't think they see each other again. Yeah. So no, there's no truth to this at all, but I like the way that it does convey Octavian's manipulative nature. Mm. He's manipulating his family for his own devices. Yeah, it's interesting that Octavian knows what he's doing. He knows what response Antony is going to have. It's like he's two moves ahead in chess, isn't it? Yeah, but Octavia doesn't realise, Artia doesn't realise that they're both being manipulated in this way. Livia figures it out. Mm, Livia's now the clever one, isn't she? Yeah. And they have kind of moved Artia's character because you feel like in the past she would have known exactly what was going on. She's lovesick after five years yeah. still. Which they get Octavia to comment on, I think, because it does seem so out of character. This has shifted so much that she relied on her power over Antony, mm. which we're then shown is long gone. Yeah, I think we need someone to say to us, oh, isn't this weird? Because we'd be thinking that watching it, yeah, given yeah. the way Artia has been portrayed. But you're right, they have kind of moved that really shrewd female character who can see through the actions of others, see what their true motives are. That has moved on to Livia. And if they'd had more time, it would have been really interesting to see exactly how Livia would have you know, developed and started moving her tentacles in in that way. Oh, Artia and Livia would have become the new Sevilla and Artia of the series. You know, that dynamic, that rivalry, that would have definitely come up, especially when they're no longer pulling Caesar between each other. They would be pulling Augustus between each other. Mm. And that's, you know, my little fan fiction for what came after. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, it's interesting to see that dynamic. It's sad to see Artia not realising any of that. And still being lovesick over Antony to that point. Yeah, but, you know, I can kind of buy it. I think it works within the context of the Mm. show. It's interesting also that as soon as they get to Egypt, Antony knows why they're there, knows what Octavian expects of him. While Octavian is playing chess a few moves ahead, Antony is also caught up with him on that level. Mm. But then his emotions just ruin him. And Mm. Cleopatra and sex and fighting is more of a priority. Yeah. 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 As we've already said, exactly playing into Plutarch's characterization of Antony as being not able to control himself, which is the worst thing a Roman man can possibly be. Yeah. Not autonomous. We must be gracious hosts, nay? Hmm? We shall throw a lovely party for them. Charmian. Send for the kitchen chamberlain. 
No, 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 no. I think in the context of the show that Anthony and Cleopatra would have, should have made a, a different decision. Cleopatra's suggestion of killing Artia and Octavia, even making it look like an accident, definitely making it look like an accident, isn't a terrible idea. <laughs> oh, harsh. Just, yeah, I know it's harsh, but just in the context of this is something that would, one, remove them as being something that can be manipulated against Antony, two, cement Antony to her like nothing else, mm. and three, just really hurt Octavian, you yeah. know, from, from Cleopatra's standpoint, you know. But that yeah. would absolutely um, be the starting point of a war. Oh, definitely. Which, no, but no, but it was an accident, and then Antony's still winning the argument. I mean, I think that might be recalling what happened to Cleopatra's brother mm. who drowned in the Nile. Was he pushed or was that an accident? There's kind of plausible deniability, but mm. everyone's quite sceptical. Yeah. The accidental drowning would be uh, maybe too much ec- echoes of um, Nero's mother. Echoes. Echoes. Not forward echoes. echoes. What a forward echoes. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's a descendant of Antony. Yeah. Yeah, he is. True. True. The other thing that I think that cannot go without being commented on is Jocasta being the only person who goes out and says hello to Artia and Octavia and just massively stealing the scene for me. I just loved every bit of of that. I mean, Jocasta now married to Posca. Mm. The two of them, they deserve so much more screen time, don't they? (laughs) And of course, Artia has always been really snotty and looked down on Jocasta. Well, she put her father's and, yeah, the and whole also family on, on, the, um, on the hit list. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, which has never been found out. As far as Jocasta knows, she doesn't know any of that. She just knows her family's dead. But mm. she presumably can perceive Artia's snobbery. Mm. But she's sort of one of those characters who managed to recover after those dreadful things happened to her. And she's made the best of a marriage with Posca, which she seems to enjoy. And they are the couple that you actually get a little bit of happiness from mm. in this dreadful, dreadful world of everyone stabbing each other in the back. Yeah. I liked her look as well. She's completely embraced the Greco-Egyptian kind of persona at that <laughs> point. So... Much love for Jocasta. Yeah, (laughs) also I like that she, uh, I mean, this is ridiculous, but she flippantly says that she can't get her mouth around the lingo, the Egyptian lingo, which might have been maybe, you know, in the markets of Alexandria that have been some Egyptian spoken. But but, as long as you speak Greek, you should be fine. Yeah, but Greek at court, absolutely. Mm. And everyone important would have spoken Greek. Mm. Anyway, I won't interrogate that too much as to whether it's Jocasta didn't know Greek because I don't think that's what they're going for. I think they're just going for that Brits Abroad character. (laughs) (laughs) Brits Abroad. (laughs) (laughs) Who don't make any effort with the local language. Oh, so is this like uh, an ancient Roman version of Carry On at this point? It kind of has aspects of that now you mention it. Yeah. Do you think any of our audience knows what Carry On movies are these days? No, Carry On Cleopatra. 30 years since one's been made. You could buy this as being, you know, the setting of a carry-on movie, carry-on Cleopatra. Didn't they do like historical kind of pantomime versions of things in carry-on? I don't know. I didn't I watch a lot of it. I think carry-on Cleopatra's the only one, isn't it? <laughs> Is there actually one called carry-on Cleopatra? Oh, didn't you know that? It's <laughs> no. carry-on Cleo. No, I didn't know that. Oh, well, you have to watch it, Matt. Okay, all right. It's got Kenneth Williams in it saying that as Julius Caesar... Yeah. Saying the line, infamy, infamy, they've all got it <laughs> infamy. <laughs> That's the very famous line. Okay, all right. We'll um we'll do a podcast about that after I've watched it. 
I haven't watched it for years. Well, I'm sure the jokes are awful. It's due. It's very due. But having said that, is there slapping in a carry-on movie? I feel like there would be a, in a ooh-ah kind of manner. Yeah, I mean, all of the violence will be very light-hearted and cartoonish. Yes, and, yes. Uh, Where it's know. not in this. Mm. So I've, I've written down Atia slaps Octavia and Verenus. Okay. Livia slaps Octavian. Cleopatra slaps Antony. All gets very kind of heated this episode. I think I noticed that more than all sex. <laughs> Sometimes they just wrapped it all together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there was slapping going on during the sex. Mm. Almost all domestic violence, isn't it, within families. Mm. Um, I don't know. It's a sign that everything has got very histrionic. Feelings are high. Yeah. Can I derail this slightly? I, I know that we should be talking soon about the last will and testament mm. of uh, Antony and Cleopatra, which does have some historical basis that is worth talking about. But also, I just want to ask about Caesarian. Would Cleopatra have raised him so poorly? I feel that this show has done her parenting skills and Caesarian an injustice. Mm. Because Caesarian is, he's so full of himself, you mean? Yeah, uh, you know, he believes himself to be a living God. He seems very entitled. I think that he probably would have not been brought up badly, Mm. not from Cleopatra's point of view. She didn't neglect him. We have no evidence for that. In fact, she was cultivating him very carefully, but she was cultivating him as a living God because that's what the Hellenistic kings believed, Okay, kings and queens, that she's a living God herself. She's a goddess. She's an embodiment of Isis. Yeah. And she will depict him as joint ruler and a god himself. So I guess you could get away with saying that's how he would appear to Romans as Mm. over-entitled. But it's playing to us, isn't it? He looks like yeah, a rat yeah. from our point of view. And I guess that that's something that must be a challenge of raising children in a, in a privileged environment. You know, you, you kind of go, you're like, how snooty are these kids going to turn out? You, mm. look at, you look at the royals, like the British royals, and go, how entitled are they going to be? Mm. And how's that going to turn into if they end up being the ruler? Well, maybe this is a flash forward to Nero Mm. because this is going to start happening to the Romans when they have a a ruling dynasty that has absolute rule. That when you get a child, and Nero is a child, he's 17 when he becomes emperor, Caligula also very young, who has that much power, then these will be the results. They're not pretty. Yeah. I think this is the point where Antony and Cleopatra have miscalculated everything in their treatment of Atia and Octavia. Not that I ever thought that they were ever going to kill them, but Cleopatra's first instinct is to welcome them in and as Antony insults her by saying, play the queen, and she rightly says, I am the queen. Yep. Play the queen. And I throw this vase at your head. (laughs) And they got so caught up in their emotions that they missed any opportunity of being strategic. Hmm. I think that that's their problem. That's certainly how it comes off. Yeah. Let's get to the will. Okay. All right. All right. So uh, Posca leaves Egypt. That's the most important part of this episode. (laughs) He honestly saves Octavian by not just leaving Egypt and saving his skin and Jocasta's skin, but taking the last will of Antony and Cleopatra. This is like the holy hand grenade of Antioch. (laughs) This is the game changer. And presenting it to Octavian actually just handing it to Mycenaeus, not even Octavian, and not asking for anything in return. He just hands it over. You have something for me, Pusco. 
It is the last will and testament of Antony and Cleopatra. To be opened and read only on occasion of their death. It is a despicable document, taken together with his repudiation of your sister. The Roman people would think a war against Antony not only inevitable, but eminently desirable. Is it genuine? It is genuine. This is your role in the Senate here. If you asked to be a senator with a couple of nice villas, Octavian would go, of course. But no, he does it. He hands it over. Good boy, Posca. Good boy. He's the loyal dog of the series. <laughs> Sometimes a, a very cunning dog, but... <laughs> he's, yeah, he's not cunning here particularly, is he? I yeah. guess he's showing his loyalty to Octavian but as the heir of Caesar. Because he doesn't Yeah, I mean, previously he's been on Antony's side. I, I don't know what they're going for. Yeah. I think it's a plot device and you're reading too much into it. Yes, yes. He's Chekhov's last will. <laughs> <laughs> and, and look, there is some truth in the will being really important for Octavian, so this is based on a source, which I have to say the rest of the episode largely isn't. But they wouldn't have had a joint will. They didn't have a joint will, mm. Antony and Cleopatra. And it wasn't in Egypt. It was in Rome. And it doesn't get used by Octavian until after the Battle of Actium. That's right. So the, the will was kept in the Temple of Vesta. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not something Posca can bring back from Egypt. It's in Rome all the time. But Octavian does open it before he should. And Plutarch tells us about that. So in the life of Antony, chapter 58, he says, this will was on deposit with the Vestal Virgins, as you said. Oh, and, okay. Now I feel less smart. But I'll <laughs> <laughs> and when Caesar, by which he means Octavian, asked for it, they would not give it to him because that would have been the norm. Mm. But if he wanted to take it, they told him to come and do it. They would not give it to him. So, then, so we, then, won't, we won't we're not give it to you. But if we were to go for a walk... <laughs> Exactly. So he went and took it because he's Octavian yeah. and began to read. And to begin with, he read its contents through by himself. And this is the part I really love and marked certain reprehensible passages. So he, like, annot- he like, annotated it. Yeah. This yep. is what I'll put in a tweet. Uh, then he <laughs> assembled the Here's my thread. Unroll. <laughs> <laughs> then he assembled the Senate and read it aloud to them although most of them were displeased to hear him do so because this is not yeah, you what don't should do happen. This. Yeah, yeah. For they thought it a strange and grievous matter that a man should be called to account while alive for, for what he wished to have done after his death. Okay. So don't read this out until the person is dead. Caesar laid most stress on the clause in the will relating to Antony's burial. Mm-hmm. For it directed that Antony's body, even if he should die in Rome, should be born in state through the forum, and then sent away to Cleopatra in Egypt. Oh, so that's the sticking point of the will. Yeah. This is what Octavian, in our historical sources, really makes hay with. Mm. This is like his allegiance is to Egypt, not to you in Rome. He, he wants the glory of being. He wants to be buried next, forum, to, um, but... next to Alexander the Great. He wants a big tomb yeah. there. Yeah. From this come rumors that he was planning to move the center of power to Alexandria. That would be the new Rome. Mm. So all of this is destroying his character. And that's why he reads it out. So in the show, Mycenaeus unrolls it and says, oh, look, living gods and divvying up the territories amongst the three children. Which has sort of already been happening, so they shift it into the will. So this is something that they essentially publicly announced anyway. Yeah, I, I mean, in the show, we've also got Caesarian being given Rome and the West, which yes. is what has actually been happening is the children with Cleopatra have been made kings of various eastern provinces. Mm. We've been given authority over them. The kind of overlap is that in the show they say 
that Antony should be buried in Egypt. Mm. So that's where we get some historical truth coming out. But they can ramp it up. So we get various things, some of which are invented, rolled into this makes Antony look bad. Mm -hmm. It definitely does. Also, in the context of the show, uh, Antony and Cleopatra have twins, but do not have a third younger child. I guess you don't need them to complicate things at this point. I don't know. I mean, I think filming with children is always complicated, isn't it? <laughs> they can only do it for a certain amount of time, blah, blah, blah. They've done the same from memory with Octavia's children as well. She has two daughters with Anthony. Which we don't see in this. They've no, got one only, daughter. There's only one. You don't need more than that for the show. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so that is the plan. The way that Octavian uses this will and what he found out in it is by making, I must admit, a pretty damn good speech to the Senate. And it was nice to see the Senate again one last time filled with senators. They all looked happy in their roles. Great speech from Octavian. And that's an important thing to present. But also the other part of this being a weapon is to present it to the people, which is done with the newsreader. Yay, at last. Much more flamboyantly. (laughs) A lot more cheers and, you know, rabble and associated crowds. But yeah, so that's how Antony now loses the argument. Mm -hmm. And why Octavian will be able to say that he has Italy and the West behind him. Actually, Antony doesn't lose the argument. Octavian wins the argument, sorry. (laughs) Yeah, but, you know, you could say Antony set it up for him. Having rejected his loving wife Octavia, Mark Antony has coupled himself to the sorceress Cleopatra, promising her dominion of all Rome. He worships dogs and reptiles. He blackens his eyes with soot like a prostitute. He dances and plays the cymbals in vile nilotic rites. I like how the newsreader talks about the Egyptians in denigrating terms, you know, worshipping dogs and reptiles. Mm. And this is picked up in a much, much later poem by Juvenal in his 15th satire where he talks about them as worshipping animals as and also leeks and onions. But, you know, they've got a dog-headed god. This allowed the Romans to see them as worshipping, and, of course, the worship of cats as well, they would have seen as weird. Mm. So they talk about them as not having this anthropomorphic set of gods, so like the Olympians, which they have, which is not true because some of their gods are human-like. Yeah. But this is part of an anti-Egyptian prejudice that may already have been seeded, but is certainly starting off now making Egypt a province after the death of Cleopatra and playing to the kind of basest instincts of what we would call racism now. Yes, yes. Because he also pulls on, I think, you know, wearing makeup and and all the other like lovely stereotypes that you'd get at this point. Yeah. We now are wrapping up the episode. So Paulo gets to enter the Senate, which I think might be the last official Senate scene that we get. And he gets to have a seat (laughs) while he's just while he's having a chat, because why not? Octavian decides to have a chat there. Uh, Octavian says that Antony and Caesarian will need to die, which which is quite blunt about it. But yeah, this is horrible for Pullo to hear. Yes, because um, Caesarian is secretly his son. Yep. Yeah. The other children may be saved to achieve stability. So. Yeah, and Cleopatra at this point. Uh, yeah. The debate over what he was planning for Cleopatra 
go on and on and on. We'll talk about it a bit more next time, I'm sure. March her in a triumph is a good look. Yeah, yeah, uh, maybe. The other children are kept alive in reality, so borrowing from history there, mm. and indeed will be given over to Octavia. Just, this version of Octavia would not have enjoyed that, I feel. <laughs> <laughs> Just to blurt it out, though, to Pullo is, is saying the quiet bit out loud, but mm, sure. Mm, yeah, Indeed. Just before we finish this episode, uh, Pullo has a, a conversation to the children, uh, which, of course, he has quite a good relationship with, and young Lucius asks if he can go with Pullo. I guess, in, in the role of a soldier or mm. something like that. Mm. Timeline-wise, he'd be old enough to be a soldier, I think. Well, how old do you think he is now? Well, okay, so he was, he was born at the start of the series, which was when Caesar crossed the Rubicon, so 49 to 32. So he's 17, which is, yeah, yeah. You, you've become a Roman man yeah. around that age. Yeah. Take away your childlike toga and get the toga realist, the toga of manliness. Would have been interesting if he went over and then killed Caesarian. He was the one who did it. Ah, oh, isn't that brutal? <laughs> um, wow, you're setting up all kinds of complicated oh. family dynamics and psychology, and then presumably Polo would have to kill him because Polo can't restrain himself. Oh, true. Oh, and they've, wow. They've got a relationship. Wow, the fan fiction is really that's dark floating out here. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. Interesting. Mm. Okay. Okay. Uh, so the episode ends uh, with Memio getting out of his cage, knocking Polo out, trying to kill him. Gaia interjecting. Oh, Gaia getting stabbed fatally. Gaia confessing to Polo. Polo killing Gaia, and then unceremoniously dumping her body in the water supply. Hmm. I hate everything about that storyline. Yeah, it's kind of hard to know quite what it was going for. Yeah. I mean, it was dramatic having, I guess, Gaia against Irene, but do you feel like they just need to get rid of those characters? There's a lot of getting rid of people at this stage. I mean, they, they didn't need to get rid of... I think they shouldn't have gotten rid of Irene. They should have let that be. I agree, because she's a really interesting character. You know, she's from Gaul, she's been enslaved, she's been freed, didn't really buy the whole... She had a fiancé killed by Pullo, but she's still prepared to marry Pullo. Mm. But apart from that, yeah. it's an interesting dynamic having this foreign character in Rome. I think it honestly just comes back to uh, what Pullo says to Gaia. He kind of laments as to why this is happening to him again. And Gaia says, you know, why are you making this about you? Mm. But I think the writers of the show have made this all about Pullo. Mm. They want... Pullo to be in this situation, therefore they're just willing to sacrifice two women in a row to make it happen, you know? Mm. Yeah, it leaves a bit of a nasty taste in the mouth, doesn't it? A nasty taste that we should have. It's a terrible way to deal so dismissively with characters because they want to give Pullo the opportunity to react to it. You know, it also... You might not want to put this in here because I am looking ahead to the final episode and the very end of it. Yeah. So maybe we'll come back to it then. But it also puts Polo in the situation where he's unencumbered by women and it's just him and his son. In closing, I liked this episode mostly. I don't like the rushed aspect of it, of course. I don't like how much it skipped over. Uh, I like the Anthony and Cleopatra stuff. Love Posca. I love the rivalry, the competition that we get in this episode between Anthony and Octavian without them ever sharing a scene. Mm. 
uh, just to see them trying to maneuver against each other mm-hmm. and their strengths and weaknesses. In I that. mean, logistically, yeah. Anthony has to be in Egypt, but it is in- it's really interesting now you say that, that they managed to convey that hostility and rivalry without ever having them together. Although I think if they were together... Anthony would just want to kill Octavian, wouldn't he? There'd be what more slapping he? in this episode than there was. <laughs> <laughs> I think there'd be stabbing as well as slapping. <laughs> You've been listening to Raising Standards, an occasional rewatch podcast in which we take a fond look at HBO's Rome with Rhiannon Evans and Matt Smith. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on any friendly and readily available podcasting platform, leave a review, and hey, tell a friend about it. You can like Raising Standards on the Emperors of Rome Facebook page and you can follow us on Twitter. Rhiannon is at Dr. Rhiannon Evans. I am at Nightlight Guy and the podcast is at Rome Podcast. That's it today for Raising Standards. So until the next episode, I'm Matt Smith. You've been fantastic and thanks for listening.